Welcome back to the Creative Vets podcast. Today we're uh, back with Richard and finishing up the rest of his story and how Creative Vets started. So you saw a need when you came home for more. There's not enough um, help for veterans, obviously, to transition at all. Well, honestly, take us back to your story. So you got medically retired Right. No, I actually, up. that's the funny thing. I actually didn't get, when I came back, because I only extended a month in the Marine Corps, when I got home and TBI and PTSD and all these other symptoms weren't a big thing in 2007. So I touched down and I you have to do something in the Marine Corps in all branches where you check out of the military. So you have to get your supply, like supply officer, your um, medic, every all people to check off this thing up to the company commander to say, you're good to go. You don't owe us anything. You can leave. So they asked me if I needed to see med, like a medical. Uh, and I said, I don't think so. You guys would have sent me to Balad and got a CAT scan if you thought I was in trouble. Like, I was a young, dumb Marine. I, I, I was like, I don't think so. So they just signed off on it like I didn't have to see him because they gave me the decision whether I wanted to see him or not, which is stupid because <laughs> I had no idea what was wrong with me. So I actually just checked out of the Marine Corps not knowing I had an issue. It wasn't until six months later. So I took, like, so I had, like I said, Harley at the time. So you come back to America. I come back. I check out the Marine Corps. I'm in 29 Palms, California. Check out. I take my... Um, oh, this actually goes back to a story about Mark Schultz. So when we talked earlier... The Christian artist. When we talked earlier about Mark Schultz, Christian artist, and Luke and telling his story, I saw that Mark Schultz was playing in Palm Springs, which is only an hour away, the second day I was home from war. And I said to myself, I'm going to go tell Mark Schultz about Luke. And this is so crazy that he's here. And my mom just got there. And so I was like, Mom, we're going here, and I'm going to talk to Mark Schultz. And I go, I don't get there till the very last song, and he plays it, and he goes back into the green room. And I just sit there and wait, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. He comes out um, of the back room, and it was at an old church. And I just, I was like, hey, I just, I just came home. I just came home from war and I wanted, and I just started bawling. Uh, and he was like, okay. And he's like, come outside, come outside with me. And I went outside and I was like, I just, um, my, my gunner Luke, we used to listen to your music in Iraq. And I just wanted to know that you, you made him a better person and that he loved you. And I just couldn't. And I was like, okay, bye. And I just left. I, I didn't know what to say. He didn't know how to like console me. I, I just wanted him to know that Luke listened to his music. I was like, okay. And I left there and I even told my mom, I was like, I'm so mad that I couldn't tell him more about Luke. Like I, that's all I wanted to do, and so we. I'm still. Uh, we still spend a few more days in California before we start making the trip back. And uh, I already had my Harley back home because when right before deployment, I drove it back. So I planned on making this trip with my mom all the way back to Illinois. So like a three day trip, and we're driving. After about after I met uh, Mark Schultz, it's probably like two days later. We're driving through Arizona-ish. We have remember Tom Toms, like the old. You either had an Atlas map or Tom oh, Tom yeah, yeah, yeah. was the very first like GPS system. Yeah. And so on there would be like you could hit breakfast places if you wanted. And for some reason, don't don't hate me out there. I was not a fan of Cracker Barrel only because of their syrup. That was the one thing. What? <laughs> Out of all things, it was their syrup. It was easily my favorite part. <laughs> I do not. I'm I'm like that real thick syrup, like the oh, real yeah. bad stuff for you. Yeah, I'm not a classy like <laughs> eater, <laughs> but for some reason, Cracker Barrel was that. It was that one thing that kept me away. So on the route home, I was getting really hungry. It was morning time, and my mom was like, "Where do you want to stop?" I was like, "Well, let's see if there's like a Denny's or something." And we look on the Tom Tom, and there was one. I click it, and it takes us off on this exit, and it wasn't there. And I was like, "Uh, like let's just stop in the next exit wherever there's food. Next exit, there's a Cracker Barrel." And I'm like, "Oh my gosh, fine, let's just do it. <laughs> let's just eat here. I can't wait any longer." And we go and we sit down. I think my niece was with me too. She's real young, and it's like me, my mom, my niece, and you know who walks in that door. Mark, Mark Schultz? Mark Schultz and his band walk around the corner to be seated. And I just say, Mom, Mark Schultz is here. And I went up and I was like, hey, I met you like two days ago. And I was able to tell him all about Luke and my experience without crying just like all the way through. Because I was like, what what just happened? Like, how does that even happen? He's like, I'm riding across country on my bicycle to raise awareness for uh, orphans and foster kids because he was an orphan. And it, so it just so happened the time he played that show and he started riding his bike across country and we just so happened to be at the same exact Cracker Barrel, the same exact time, like two states away wow. or whatever. It's insane. Um, 
Wow. So that was a powerful moment. But wait, where were we went before I went into the Mark Schultz thing? But, oh, yeah, coming back home. Yep. Because I took about six months off, and I took my Harley to Sturgis, and I just wanted to live life. I didn't want to use my brain at all because I didn't need to. And and I come home, and I'm like, okay, time to go to college and get a degree and do all the things. And so uh, I'm back in, like, now I'm living in Bloomington, Illinois, just not too far from where I live because I was like, I'll go to Heartland Community College, get two my associates, and then I'll move on to Illinois State University to get a four-year degree, um, and I'll probably study business or entrepreneurship or something cool. And so I start going to classes, and the thing I didn't know is because I wasn't using my brain very much. I didn't. I still had migraines all the time that weren't really going away, and I still had like. Short, you had what four concussions, three concussions at three this point? concussions that were diagnosed and four times being being blown, yeah. having the Humvee blown up. And so I I had like a bunch of little symptoms, but not enough to make me feel like something was really, really wrong. And plus they said that PTSD symptoms don't really kick in until like 90, 90 to 180 days after or something crazy. It goes all the way up to maybe like six months where sometimes you start feeling everything. And I have a theory behind that too. But um, I started going to college and I f- failed my very first business class and I was like okay I'm not that dumb and I was just like I don't you give me these assignments that are are, it's a hybrid like online and in person and I can't understand them and I I keep forgetting my login I keep forgetting how to do this and I was like I was starting to have enough issues to where I was going to the VA started like dabbling I was like okay I'm just gonna go to the VA hospital see if there's something with my brain that's wrong but also I started getting insanely sick Every morning I drove to class and I would just be sick. And I was like, well, I know morning sickness. I was like, well, I know I'm not pregnant. Uh, I was like, what else could this be? Like a legit, I was, what is this? I would legitimately get diarrhea and throw up like just from anxiety. And I had no idea what was going on. And I started noticing it is because I'm like trying to diagnose myself. And it was because of this anticipation. I kept it was always before I entered a class, or and it really got bad when they started telling me I had to go do a speech or be center of attention mm. for even a second. Just even calling me out, raising my hand, or if they said Richard, like I'd feel it come on really bad. To the point to where in Illinois you have to take a speech class, and it ended up being so bad I had to do one-on-one speeches as my speech teacher. I feel like a piece of crap being like seeing these 18, 19 year old kids speak about these little papers that they're writing. And then they're and then they come to me and they're like, why isn't this dude talking? And let alone I'm I'm doing these talks behind closed doors just with the teacher because my anxieties are so bad, I can't get up in front of these class. When I used to guard the president of the United States and I went to war and I was class clown and prom king and could do anything from anybody, now I feel like a piece of crap and I'm I'm just can't do anything. But I also think your brain was so conditioned for snipers. That now you're the center of attention in front of everybody. Your subconscious mind is like, oh, I might get sniped right now. Like you may not have thought that in your actual brain, but your subconscious, I think, maybe could have been registering that. Well, I think it's not just the sniper portion of it. I think it might. It's most likely even more the blast because of that. Remember the anticipation I was talking about of being blown up, right? Trying to brace but yourself. Yeah, for I didn't know any of that when I'm when it's going through your body and you're just coming home from war. You think there's no threats? Well, your subconscious is picking up on every threat. Yeah, that's what we don't see. So yeah, for me it was like okay, it could have even been a disconnect. I didn't want to hang out with other people because my buddy was shot and killed, so I didn't want to react with them. But then mm-hmm. being the center of attention was an anticipation of what I would say, which then reminded me of my anticipation of being blown up. So yeah, it's it's all these little things that people. When they come home from war, they're like, well, I don't know why I feel so angry or anxious or whatever, but you could do what you just did and place a moment in time to be like, well, do you think it's because of that that you don't like to spend time with people because you watched your friend die? Like, And they're like, no. I'm like, well, think deeper about it. Like, Maybe that is that when it started. And so that's the whole thing that art and music does, too. It challenges you to think those ways. And to make connections yeah. between your experiences and what you feel in the moment. Yeah, but it took me, even after I got into art and music, it took me like, three years to really pull it out there was like the initial part where after i started failing my classes and i went to the va and they they ended up diagnosing me with traumatic brain injury and uh ptsd and tinnitus and a bunch of like migraines and a bunch of other stuff and then i was like well and they told me they legitimately told me like hey you won't be able to learn new technical skills or it'll be really hard for you to learn new technical skills 
you have short-term memory issues. Like your visual memory is actually better than normal. So what happened was that your left brain was damaged, but your right brain is still good. And what might happen is that your right brain might take over for where your left brain is failing. Hmm. And so that's exactly what happened, but I didn't know in the time. I just I just looked back and, again, optimism. I said, in that moment, and if zero was killing myself and 100 was me before war, I was at a nine. I, was, I didn't know what to do. I, I had all these issues. I had arthritis. I had these back issues. I had this brain issue. Uh, issue. I said, I can't learn new skills. I can't go do, like, manual labor. I was like, what can I do? There's legitimately nothing I could do. But I wanted to lean back on my past, and I said, okay. I had Yankee White Category 2 clearance. It's got to count for something. What if I just get the easiest degree I could think of and then go to one of these three-letter agencies like FBI, CIA, use, lean in on my clearance, and then I have a degree? Because what I learned coming out of the Marine Corps was it didn't really matter what degree you had unless you're very specialized. Like if you're going to be a doctor or nurse, you obviously need a degree for that. But if you're going to be a cop or an agent or anything like that, yeah, criminal justice is good and stuff, but they legitimately just want you to have a degree. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know, I'm just, I used to doodle and draw a lot in high school. Screw this easy degree in art. I'm just going to take a bunch of art classes and just float by, be around people like me who are anxious and depressed and don't want to talk. Hopefully don't have to make any speeches. And don't have to make <laughs> any speeches. I was like, this will be the money. This, this is what I'm going to do. And so I started taking like creative writing and drawing and all these things. And uh, I'm I starting to really enjoy the art portion of it. And the people were starting to like, I was starting to kind of click with them when it comes to, we didn't like to talk to each other. It was kind of like, you were, it's when I say click, it's like, I like to be in the room with them because they weren't peering over my shoulder and they weren't being like, Hey, what are you doing tonight? What are you getting? So I was like, okay, this is a good vibe for me. I think I could survive here. And I totally lucked out with one of the best teachers I could, probably could have ever got because I'm in a basic drawing class and it could have been like, even the second drawing class I was in, every single year I go back to Houston to visit Luke's grave during the time in December when he when he died, and I had this photo taken of me by my uncle that it was me on the grave uh, with my arm up, my tattoo showing, and I just love this photo. It was my favorite photo of me at his grave. So I said, "This is going to be for me. Rather than drawing still lifes and doing other stuff, I'm going to copy this photo." draw this in a chalk pastel and this is just for me and i did it away from anybody else i didn't want anybody else to see my work so i'm in my own little corner and i'm drawing this i have the photo of it up here i'm coloring it all in i've colored in my skin tone i've colored in my cami shorts that i have in the photo my black like marine corps t-shirt cut off t-shirt because i was really cool like that uh yeah i dress way different now uh and i have everything colored in the way it's supposed to be except for the background, which is all grass. So I have roses at the headstone. I have the headstone and there's nothing for the grass yet. I was just saving for the end. And the teacher walks by and he says, Hey Richard, instead of doing the grass green, like I know you're going to do, because everything else in this is the color supposed to be. I want to challenge you to do a color that doesn't make sense to the way grass would be, but it makes sense to the way you feel. And I was like, that sounds dumb. I don't want to like, <laughs> I don't. Grass is green. Yeah, that's stupid. You don't want to ruin your artwork. Yeah, I was like, that's, this is really good. Have you seen this thing? I was like, this is mint. I don't want to get rid of it. But I'm a really good, like I could, be, I'm teachable. So I said, you know what? Screw it. I'll just do, I, and I didn't know why I was doing it, but I was just, I was just too red. I just did everything red. And so another thing I didn't know about the arts was that you have to do these little things called critiques. And I was like, oh, there's another step to this? I thought I just got to draw and paint and stuff. I didn't know I had to actually talk about it. So I put my piece up with everyone else's pieces, and they're like, Richard, do you want to talk about your piece? And I said, nope, ain't talking about this. (laughs) And uh, they said, students, do you want to talk about Richard's piece? And they're like, yeah, I think... I think you put red in there because you're angry that he died. And I think you put red in there because you saw him die and you saw his blood. I think you put red in there because you loved him or he had a good relationship. And I'm sitting here thinking, they all, like, they're speaking to me directly. Like, how did they know that I was in this situation? It could have been a brother. It could have been just someone that I was, like, close to. That how, How did they know that I was that connected by using one color to change everything so in my mind i was like oh is this 
conceptual art? Like, is this what people are doing? Is this why art is so impactful to a lot of people? I can see your right brain just strengthening Yeah, (laughs) during all this. this, Yeah, I wish I could see it in real time. Like, it'd be like (laughs) all those equations and stuff just yeah. happening i'm just like that's what i picture wouldn't that have been awesome just like and i'm like unlocking this new feature and i just dive all in and i start thinking like if i did that with one color what can i do with multiple colors or different symbols and all this and for the first time in my life i was actually excited to talk about something because i was i was like how do i do a piece about my brain injury now and like i would have never i never want to tell people about my brain injury but now i'm like ooh, how do i do a piece of my brain injury see if they understand this because it's it's almost like its own um like puzzle like yeah. i have to put this puzzle together that only certain people could decipher so i get to choose who the audience is so if i'm like i'm going to make a piece for just combat vets but i want civilians to also enjoy it but i don't want them to know what i'm saying how do i do that so it gets you into this moment of being like I'm going to create this piece that I'm going to tell multiple stories on. So a civilian walks up and I say, oh, yeah, this is about my military career and this is about not being able to hold on to this and this. But then a friend comes up and I'm like, this is about the death of my gunner. And so that was cool to me because it empowered me to talk to the people I felt like I trusted. But the thing that was happening was the more I talked to the people I trusted, the more I was actually open to talking to civilians. So then a civilian come up and I'd tell them the true story and I'd be like, that was weird. That wasn't that hard. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm like, okay, I'm digging this whole art thing. And then I'm also in a creative writing class at the same time. And it was so funny because this creative writing teacher, if you see me, especially back then, I mean, wearing those cami shorts, cut off, had a Harley, like with tattoos, and I'm six foot five, six foot six with boots on. And I come rolling into this this drawing class and this this creative writing teacher's like, I just love you. You're you're a marine and masculine. You drive a Harley, but you're doing art and you're writing these <laughs> and he just loved me because I was such a different person than what he usually has in there. But I really got behind this creative writing because even though I did that piece about Luke, I still couldn't tell people about Luke. I couldn't without breaking down, and I didn't want to break down. So I said, what if I had a song that I could just give to people about Luke? I'm already writing. It can't be that hard to write a song. I'm already writing prose and poems and all this stuff, and I like it. So I was like, where do I even start? And so I started thinking about it. And at the same time, because of my anticipation anxiety, I couldn't get a job anywhere. But I love listening to music. So I used to always go to this bar called Six Strings in Bloomington, Illinois. And I would just go in there. And this one guy who was a bouncer there was like, hey, you looking for a job? I was like, yeah, actually, that'd be cool. And he hired me on the spot. So I was like, oh, sweet. Because anticipation is the interview and the process. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so since he did it spot on like that, I was like, oh, sweet. Yeah, That's I'll take what you it. Needed. So right when I started at this little at this little bar, this band started as well with this really tall, good-looking lead singer named Brett Gillen. Uh, who's hey, right I know be- him. <laughs> <laughs> who's right beside me. Uh, and so me and Brett create like a super quick friendship because he's like the house band now. So he's almost there almost every weekend that we're there. And so we just connect. And uh, I'm not sure how long it took, but once I knew he was driving to Nashville every single week or whatever, at least once a month, to Nashville to write songs, it clicked in my head saying, well, here's a guy who performs music, who writes songs. Maybe I'll just try to ask him about songwriting. And I remember asking him about songwriting, uh, and I had these ideas for songs. I think I went to him for a few of them, just saying, like, how does this process work? And I can't remember how it came up, but I think you encouraged me to at least play guitar. So I reached out to and he and he was like, hey, my roommate has an extra guitar that you could probably use. And so and I still remember it was blue. It was like a little mm-hmm. kind of janky guitar, but I borrowed his roommate's guitar Brett showed me like the first three chords, like here's your placements, now go to YouTube. And so I went to YouTube. He didn't know ultimately why I was trying to learn to write songs. He saw I was interested in it. And uh, I just started, I went to YouTube and I was, I, I started by doing uh, parodies of other songs. So I would read out these songs and I'd put them down and I'd learn them on guitar first, super easy ones. And then to help my brain, because my what they said for my TBI is that my Rolodex in my brain was broken. So the recalling of words, like trying to, a lot of times I'd be like, muh, 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 and I couldn't recall the word. But songwriting started helping me in the parodies, especially because I was finding new words. I was using new words every single day, building up that vocabulary. And I would just do these rewritten lyrics. I had so many of them. It was pretty awesome, actually. That's what got me into the writing portion. But I also want to, because I never ask you about your what you remember about the 
like our interaction when I first started diving into this? Well, I, like as a civilian, I didn't realize your post-traumatic stress and everything because you, you were always still like a happy-go-lucky kind of guy. Um, so you would say things like, like, so we used to go to the swimming pool like pretty much every day and we go get barbecue after and it was great. <laughs> but there'd be certain days where you'd just be like, no, I'm not going today. I'm like what like there's girls in bikinis and like it's the pool it's summertime and there's meat involved we can and eat yeah we can eat and you just be like no nah, i'm just gonna stay home and play video games so i'm like all right well i'm gonna go to the pool and look at girls so <laughs> uh so i didn't really notice the post-traumatic stress the tbi and all that stuff um until now like obviously now i completely understand it but i think a lot of um maybe family members for veterans maybe don't understand exactly what veterans are going through, like what they've seen in war, what they've done, what they're still trying to process. And it's like most of the time, the happiest ones are the ones that are worse off. The ones that you think, like you thought, oh, he's Mm -hmm. good. He's just playing video games. But really it's, I probably had a horrible anxiety and depression that day and I didn't want to leave my house. I probably hadn't left my house in a few days and I just didn't want to go out. And I thought, I hit it really well, and I did for a lot of my coworkers, especially because I could I would turn on the like, hey, what's up? Like, oh my gosh, so much fun! But then the moment I leave, I would just freak out, or I'd be at home and I just wouldn't want to leave. And the first time, I mean, when when so time ended up doing this documentary of my life because it's kind of crazy. And the first time I almost broke down on on screen at this point because. I thought I hit it really well for my mom, especially too, because she didn't even see me near as often as my friends did. And then when she told the camera, she was just like, yeah, she's like, he thought he was hiding it, but I was actually worried he was going to kill himself. Or she said something like in reference to me harming myself. And it's just, I was like, she knew, like, of course, yeah, of course the moms would know, but she knew something was wrong with me and something was off with me, but I was able to hide it from everyone else. And that's the thing is people... People just shouldn't overlook that. They shouldn't be like, oh, they're good. We, They're cool. We had a veteran who applied to our programs who was on our waiting list that I reached out to six different times. I still have text messages where we're like exchanging. And he was like, man, dude, I want to come out. I'm super busy. He even screenshot his calendar, like how busy his calendar was. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dude, I just, whenever you can do, let's get you out here to Nashville to write a song. And it's, it's all good. And then, you know, for three months later, four months later on, I think it was on Christmas Day or on New Year's Day, he killed himself. And I'm just like, it's these these guys who are the ones that we're trying to get after, the ones that we're trying to like break down these barriers to where, you know, I don't know. And and family and friends should be the ones to be like, hey, I know he's acting like he's super busy, but he stopped coming over like that kind of stuff or he yep. stopped coming to the pool with me and mm-hmm. he stopped doing this. And maybe that's the first trigger point of being like, hey, they do need help. So yep. kind of get rid of that whole facade of them being hardcore and, and, and super busy and super on top of the world and successful. There's Vietnam veterans who will run a company for 40 years and be on top of the world and then smell something that reminds them of Vietnam and then trigger. And they'll go full 100% PTSD, lose their business, lose everything. And so it's just, we can, I always say it's, I'm always keeping up with it. So I think it's always in me. Like this post-traumatic stress is always in me. I'm just staying ahead of it. So every time I do art, music, write a song, help a veteran, I'm just keeping ahead of it. The moment I stop all that and I just kind of give up and go back to playing video games and chilling for a little bit, thinking my life's comfortable, it'll catch me. Mm-hmm. And then if I if I'm not quick, I have to like it'll it'll overtake me. And so I'm I'm consistently trying to get in there. But yeah, I've always wondered. I we we talk a lot, but I always forget how you remember those moments too. Well, I think like a lot of uh, civilians too. They're like, oh, he's like they're trying to relate to you. So like. You saw somebody die, Luke. I've seen people die. I've had, you know, my grandma died or whatever, you know, my mom died. And, but again, I had time to process that. So I'm thinking, well, I dealt with what happened to me. So you should be able to deal with what happened, happened to you. But the thing is you haven't had time to deal with it. And now it's been, you know, four months you were overseas then you come home and you still haven't dealt with it. Whereas I get to start dealing with it right away. Yeah. And I think that's kind of like the biggest disconnect. Oh, that's a huge disconnect. And just being the one, because it's kind of survivor guilt, too, with your family. Because I've had over five five or six now aunts and uncles die of cancer. There's like, you don't feel like you're in charge of them or that you're responsible for Mm -hmm. them. For me, with Luke, too, there's huge survivor guilt. Because it was like, I was his vehicle commander. You play over everything. What if I would have made him? I could have just been like, no, just stay down. 
and he would have had to stay down and he'd still be alive. And so these are the things that you replay in your head. And then actually watching it take place of, you know, obviously him get shot, blood rolling out, like trying to save him there. You start replaying each one of these moments and being like, how could this have been different? How could this have been different? How could this? But honestly, it couldn't have been different. Like everything played out the way it was supposed to play out and the way it did. And just by looking back at that and blaming yourself isn't going to help anybody. And so now I live my life trying to live for both of us and not looking back at this being like, I made a mistake because he made those choices too. And he was a really good gunner. He was, he, and that's what people I think forget. They think it's a one person thing, but no matter what you do, if you watch, if, if it's your friend who dies, if it's someone else who gets blown up in front of you, they made the exact same choice you did. So they would probably kick you in the face if they knew that you thought it was your fault. Um, and so that's why I try to tell the other veterans too. And that's actually told what I told our friend Brandon is when he, when our friend, uh, other friend got injured in war and his parents were like, let's blame Bush and just super mad at the president. I was like, Hey, never. And I was like, I, Brandon, if I die overseas, when I go, you better not blame anybody but me. I was like, I know that I could die. I know I can get, you know, disfigured. I know I can get burnt. I know all these things are happening and I'm still going. So if you ever take this out on anybody else, like I, you're no longer my friend. Like I don't want a person like that in my life. So I have to even remind myself when I think about the whole with Luke, I have to remind myself he made these choices and he was trying to be an awesome gunner. And that's why he kept standing up. Even when I told him to sit down, he was doing his job. And uh, so, yeah, I, th- I just think people need to rethink that, that there's two people in, in all these equations and it'll help them rethink those those negative experiences. So to jump back to the art degree, I think it's pretty fascinating that you were, you know, you kind of just stumbled upon this. I'm just going to get this easy degree. I'm going to take yeah. these art classes. And what you didn't realize when it was happening was that you were kind of gaining these tools to deal with all of that. Yeah. Um. So how does that translate into you know, your next steps in life and, and the decisions that you made to to begin a nonprofit. Yeah. And I didn't even, I really didn't like other veterans or military people. I was kind of like one of those disgruntled veterans who I was kind of in it for myself. I was healing myself. I was like, this is awesome. I'm starting to learn this. Brett started teaching me like the chords on, on the guitar and stuff. And so my whole mindset, I was like, I'm going to write a song about Luke one day. And so my art kept going to where I graduated from Heartland Community College. And actually right before that, uh, they, a representative from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago comes down and says, hey, we're the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Walt Disney went here, George O'Keefe, we're one of the top art schools in the country, and we're right in your backyard, we're just up in Chicago. So I go to my teacher, I'm like, well, this school sounds pretty cool, I'm going to apply for there. And he's like, don't apply for there. He's like, you have to be a artist your entire life, or you have to have a lot of money to go to that school. And I had neither. But I was like, optimism. I was like, mm-hmm. you know what, this is the only school I'm going to apply for. So that was the only school I applied for. And I go up there for the portfolio review, and they said, you're really good draftsman. We love your work, but there's not enough content here. So I only had probably, you're supposed to have, I think, between 15 and 20 pieces of art. And typically they're conceptual art. There's like That's your portfolio to get into this prestigious school. And I had probably eight still lives and two that could have been conceptual, including the one I just talked about. And the other one was a painting of like a, a Harley turning into an eagle on a desert road. So it wasn't <laughs> tons of context there, but it's still, I guess you could call it conceptual. Uh, and I lay out my portfolio and the ladies reviewing it. And this is to get into the school. Like this is the last step. Like I did the portfolio review first that got at least approved to get to this next meeting. And I'm in this meeting with this lady and she says, you know, typically we're thinking about the next big artist, the next big thing. We really lean in on conceptual ideas, abstract ideas, and I'm just not seeing it here. And I said, well, let me tell you, I was, I'm new to art. I was like, I am. And I was, uh, I was restrained to only do the stuff that my teacher taught me. But let me tell you what I want to do. I was like, cause he had to teach me those things. And now I'm here. Here's what I want to do. I want to show you what loss of innocence from war looks like. I want you to feel what it feels like to be blown up. I was like, I'm going to create art that will do that, that will evoke these emotions and pull this from you. And so I think that's what kind of, she's like, let me call in another guy. And then she called in someone else to the office. I gave him the same spiel. And they said, you know what, let's give him a shot. And they, wow. they gave me a shot. And now I'm in the school there in Chicago, and I am just cannot believe I get in. But at this point, too, at the time, I have my... uh 
I was in a relationship at the time, and I knew that if I went to this school, for one, I would lose out on money because in Illinois I had I had uh, my, well I had the Montgomery GI Bill, which didn't pay for private colleges, and SCSE was a private college. I was and I was getting my disability, and so I was pretty much getting paid to go to college if it was a community or state college. I knew that I was about to travel three hours away that would most likely end my relationship, and it, I would go into debt because I wouldn't be able to pay for the school. But I knew how important art was in my life, and I knew if I didn't make the change right then that I don't know how long I'd be living. So I made that hard choice of saying, okay, I'm going. And I went to the school there in Chicago, and I still at this point had really bad anxieties because even at Heartland, I didn't tap into the conceptual stuff. I did a little bit on my own, but I didn't have any instructors like that specifically dealt with that. So the first two days, I had to do the freshman and transfer student orientation I went to the the place because I knew there was it was the opening kind of like opening ceremonies. I would always go last and I would always have a bottle of water because when my anxieties got so bad I would actually physically throw up and it was from like the dry heaving my mouth goes really dry so I'd always bring water because it would help me like stall that event from happening so I could leave. Brought a bottle of water, went there to the very back uh, round table, sat down. There's these two lovely looking parents across from me. And then this little uh, dopey kid kind of comes in and sits down next to them. And I'm like, perfect. He ain't going to talk to me. Uh, <laughs> so I'm just sitting there and everything else is filled in. So I know nobody else is probably going to come up. And then, of course, like good parents, they try to get their son to to meet me. They're like, oh, my gosh, meet our son. And then we start talking just for really briefly, like, okay, hey. And he's like, like, come on, mom. I don't want to meet anybody. <laughs> like that kind of mood out of him. And so we had that little conversation. And then they said, hey, now we're going to break out into groups. And so I bounced. I went back to my dorm because I don't do – my anxiety depression were so bad that I couldn't do these small group activities. So I left. So I didn't go back all day. The second day, the same thing. I went there, sat in the back, and then the moment they said they're breaking off small groups, I left. So I didn't see any of the orientation besides the very opening, probably like 10 minutes of it. But that's important, that little like that, – that first interaction with that kid because I need – I need battle buddies in my life. I need people who understand me, who know my story in order to be comfortable with something. And I go to my first class that day. It's a collage class, third floor of the building. And I go up to the door and I'm always the first one there. Because again, as long as I'm sitting down and people come in, I'm fine. But if I walk in when people are in there, I feel the center of attention. I feel like anxious. So I get there and I look at the door and there's no glass on the door. I'm like, there might be someone in here. I know I'm like a half hour early, but there could be someone in here. I started getting these anxieties and depression again. And I started pacing down the hall and I legitimately thought I wasn't going to be able to go to school. I was like, okay, maybe I made a bad choice. Maybe I'm not going to be able to do this. All this stuff. And I'm pacing and I'm pacing. And all of a sudden the dopey kid that I met at the table starts walking down the hallway and I'm like looking at him. And then he starts going to that door. I was like, Hey, are you going to this class? He's like, yeah. I was like, I have this class too. I was like, there's something I need you to know. I was like, I was blown up four times in Iraq. I watched my best friend die. I was like, I can't do things without other people. Let me people. just lay this on you real legitimate, quick. <laughs> legitimate, like laid it on him super quick saying, I can't do this without someone knowing my story. Will you walk in the class with me? I, I'm like looking straight down at this kid because he's super tiny, dopey art school kid. And I'm just like, this all happened to me. And he's just, I don't even know if he's, to this day, he probably still doesn't process what I said. Because <laughs> he's just like looking up. And he just kind of like shakes his head like, okay, yeah. And so I walk in with him and I sit down and that's that's the end of it. That's when I started from that moment on, like just learning how to transfer my warrior brain to my artist brain to think like an artist and to, to dive into all these different art forms. And slowly but surely, by the time I graduated from the school there in Chicago, uh, back to that chart from zero to 100, I was at an 85. I was able to speak to people. I was able to go to job interviews if I wanted to. I was able to interact. I still had this, you know, sense of not wanting to go do stuff and all this other stuff, but I felt so good compared to where I was. And that's when I kind of looked back to my life and I said, well, what other veteran, especially like combat Marine, six foot five, like, will they choose art? Like, is art something that they'll choose as an option? I don't think it is. And then there's a few other stories that go along with this that are parallel. The parallel version of the songwriting portion is while I'm still at the school here in Chicago, I'm working at a place called Joe's Bar as a bouncer. Again, I'm big. It's easy to get a job at a place like that. And they had a writer's roundup there. And I knew at this point I had a song I wrote uh, 
about Luke, but it didn't actually do justice to his life. And I want to put him on a pedestal. And so there's a writer's round, and I go up to each one of the writers, and I say, hey, have you, at the end of it, I say, hey, have you ever written a song with a veteran or for a veteran? And the first guy was like, no. Second guy was no. Third guy, uh, he was like, yeah. Actually, me and Billy Ray Cyrus wrote a song called Runway Lights about a staff sergeant coming home from war. I was like, in my head, I was like, perfect. He's the guy. And I said, hey, I have so much going on inside of me. I've been trying to write a song about my buddy who was shot and killed beside me, and I can't. If I just come to you in Nashville, will you write with me? And he said, yes. And that guy's name is Mark Irwin. And you, we can look him up. Maybe we'll read off a list of his songs at the end. And he's got multiple, multiple number ones. He wrote Alan Jackson's first number one hit here in the free world. Real world. Yep. Real world. And uh, Redneck Crazy and a bunch of other songs. Taylor Swift, Tim McGraw. Yep. So he gave me a chance. And so I drove down to Nashville and I wrote pretty much a song and a half with him. And it blew my mind that these stories I've been keeping inside me, he could turn into a song just like that. So those two things clicked. The first one, okay, this completely saved my life. How do I get other vendors to do arts? Second thing with songwriting was, oh my gosh, they could take any story that's like, could be five hours long and they could turn it into a three minute song that I can give to anybody. So at the same time, and this is another just crazy story, the meeting of the co-founder of Creative Vets. Because, again, I have no idea about nonprofits. I didn't even – by the first time, I actually brought a vendor down to Nashville before I even thought about Creative Vets being a nonprofit. I just said, well, this helped me. I want to bring my buddy who lost his leg and has burns all over his body to Nashville to write with the number well, one songwriter. Go there real quick. So you go down to Nashville from Chicago to write with Mark Irwin your song. Yep. How are you feeling after that song? feel horrible. No, just kidding. <laughs> I feel awesome. I'm just like, oh my gosh, Like this this is a song that I could text and just share with people. And we had a song and a half, so I knew I was about to come back down anyways, because I was like, we're going to finish this second song. Mm-hmm. And Mark was cool with that. I was like, this is this is crazy. This hit writer is, is willing to like set dates with me. And when he, people now can't even get in rooms with him at that same time. And I was just so pumped that I told my friend Jesse about it, because I said, hey, we have... Uh, I knew he loved music, but he hated telling a story. I was like, dude, what if I brought you to Nashville and we could write with the number one songwriter about what you went through? And he's like, dude, I'll yes, let's do that. So we talked a bunch and we we kind of got his – I wanted to help him prep. I wanted him to be as prepared as possible. For one, be respectful of the songwriter's time, but for two, to help him figure out what he really needs to say. Yeah. And so I worked with him for a long time, and then we ended up coming down and writing with a band called Blackjack Billy. Mm-hmm. And um, two of the writers on there have a number one. I think Jeff Copeland and, and Noel, weren't they the Rob. two writers? Or Rob? Yeah. Were the they writers. wrote Angel Eyes for uh, Love and Theft. Yeah. And so... Or no, they wrote um, Runaway. Well, they wrote Angel Eyes. Jeff wrote Angel Jeff, Eyes. Yeah. I know that. Um because I did a parody. We'll fact of check. All I did. This a, at yeah, the end. I did a parody of that song, and he's he was like, "I saw that song," and I was like, "I wrote that song, the parody version, yeah. which is awesome." It's called uh, "Freedom Fries." Um, <laughs> anyways, <laughs> I digress. Um, and so Jesse came, wrote his song, and it blew him away. And the he went from, you know, muffled, just like I don't want to tell my story, like in the right, yeah, in the right, to hearing his words come to life with music, and he was just cloud nine, just word vomit, just telling us stuff that I didn't even hear when we first talked. I was like, this is awesome. So we come out of it, and he's texting his song to his wife and to his like, he put it up on YouTube, and his sister in law is like writing us like, I didn't know my 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 brother in law thought this way. So I'm so pumped about this idea, and that's kind of when it clicks that this should be something bigger than just me bringing friends. Because you're seeing that transformative experience that's happening from before to after the song is written. And in just a three-hour period. This is, I thought, I studied art and music for four years, so obviously it helped me a long period of time. Mm Mm-hmm. Could I actually help someone make that big of a difference in their life with a three-hour writing session? I didn't know. And so it was two-parter. I wanted Jesse to just come experience it. Two, he was kind of like my guinea pig. And I was like, I want to see if this works for someone else. And it absolutely did. Before I even took Jesse down, though, it's another one of those – it's like one of those Mark Mark Schultz stories where I, at the time, I was dating someone in that lived in Peoria, Illinois, and I was up in Chicago – and we were just like Skyping one night and my old my roommate at the time was someone that Brett even knew too that was like a girl that we knew in Bloomington she moved to Chicago for a job and we had an extra room she stayed in there typically like my girl at the time didn't want me to hang out with most other people and so she would come in while I was Skyping with her she said hey 
my uh, birthday is this weekend, and my dad came up. He's on drill because he was in the military. He's like, he's on drill. He's coming up to take me to a steakhouse. Do you want to come for my birthday dinner? And I look at my girlfriend on Skype, and I said, hey, like, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm Skyping. And, she, and then my girlfriend's like, no, you can go. I was like, okay. So I close it, and I go with her, and her dad's in his camis. And this is the day before Veterans Day in Chicago. And we go to Jay Alexander's, and we're eating. He, he's sitting here. His daughter's sitting here, like right across from me. Uh, and these two ladies walk up, and they stop, and they thank him for his service. And they're just like, thank you so much. And he says, don't thank me. He's like, thank him. And he points to me. And obviously, I'm just like, I put my head down. Uh, and he's like, he was injured in Iraq, and he's seen the real war, all this stuff. And so thank him. And they turn to me. They say, thank you so much for your service. They end up, We chat for a few minutes, and they walk out. And then probably five minutes later, luckily we stopped and we got dessert. Five or ten minutes later, I feel like, one of them walks back in, and she said, hey, are you three by chance going to the Bears game tomorrow? And we're like, no. She's like, okay, because it's it's salute to your troops game, and I happen to have three uh, clubhouse tickets. And I already told my friends we were going, but I would like to give them to you instead. And so we start, like, Cammy starts, like, bawling because she's just like, <laughs> oh, my God. And then we humbly accept the offer. And she's like, no. She's like, if you're accepting, you got to come and get these. Because I, I'm, you know, she was like loving but firm too. Like, you yeah. got to come by. So she gives me her address and everything. And I go down and I see she lives on like Lakeshore Drive. So I know she's a wealthy woman and that she was, uh, that she's well off. Because I'm in my head, I'm thinking like, what can I give her to re- ever repay her? Because this is just so well, awesome. Talk about the game first, though. It's the Bears versus houston yeah which is so my gunner luke's mm-hmm. from houston texas mm-hmm. and i'm chicago i'm from you know illinois and i'm a bears fan so it was my team versus his team on veterans day so i get pick up the tickets from her place and i go to the game and it rains the whole time we lose the bears lose mm-hmm. um, but it was one of the most magical experiences so when i came home i wrote to her this email that said like you know never because i never thought or I said something about this being the best Veterans Day ever, all because of the kindness of a stranger. Mm-hmm. And so we kept up for, for months after that, just getting together to eat lunch and just talk about things. And I had this photo of Jesse I did in a photography class that I ended up printing out and giving to her because I was like, what do I give her if, if I think she can get most things? It was a piece of my artwork, and I gave her the photo of Jesse. And then Jesse was the one I ended up taking to Nashville to write a song with. So I come back after writing with Jesse, and I'm sitting down with her for lunch, and I'm just... I tell her about the experience and how it's affected him. And I said, I just want to turn this into a nonprofit or something. She's like, okay, let's do that. I was like, wow. wait, what? She's like, I know how, like, I know some people I can help fill the board. And she's like, I've sit on some boards before so we can make this happen. And so she said, let's make it happen. I'm like, okay. And that's where the momentum got. And I just started, uh, I graduated December of 2012. I walked in the ceremony like May of 2013 for School Dare Institute of Chicago. Creative Events was started July 2013. And so she's become the co-founder? Yep. And yep. her name is? Linda Tarson. Yeah, Shout she's Yeah, she's the most amazing person. And at first, it was just, they just gave me the reins. They said, you know what's going to help veterans the most. She found like four different people to be on the board. I found three, put them on the board. We had this amazing, uh, same time, my same battle buddy I mentioned earlier, Jeremy Durbin, he just started dating this girl who happened to be a lawyer, and uh, we needed a lawyer to set up our bylaws and all that stuff. And so she came on pro bono. He's now happily married to her, still has been for a while. And she was our lawyer for like the first five years just doing pro bono work. So everything came to place like the exact same time we needed it to. Wow. And we were off and running. And from day one, I said, I want to eliminate all friction points to veterans receiving this help because I want to go after those veterans who are committing suicide, the ones who need it the most. So I need to make sure that we we can help veterans from anywhere in the country. So we're paying for their flights no matter where they're at. We're going to pay for their food while they travel or while they're here. Uh, we're going to give them a battle buddy so they'll always have me in the beginning. And then when we expand, it'll be other veterans like me. Um, we need to make sure that their anxieties and depression are outweighed by excitement because that's how we're going to get them here. So I'm looking at all these different things that I call friction points. Mm-hmm. And I'm setting those up. And the board was cool. And they said, yes, yes, yes. They all donated some money when we first started so we could launch. And the first year, it was just songwriting, but we helped about nine vendors throughout that year. But we were able to either fly them in or they drove in, and then I would come in town with them, and I would take them through this three-day process of just we'd become battle buddies. We'd talk about what they're trying to do. 
I would go into the writing room with them, make sure that they were able to tell their story, and I would pick up where they left off. If they got too emotional, I would start talking about it, and we'd get their song, and we'd turn it into a song. So the first year, nine veterans came through, and we told their stories, and it was just so impactful. But the next vision was, now how do I start up the arts program? And that was a hard one. How do you get veterans excited about art? So I went back to the school there in Chicago. I was like, hey, remember me? I came, I graduated from here. And I met with a guy named Paul Coffey, who was the vice provost. And uh, little did I know that I did this piece while still there that one of the deans saw or the dean or the president saw. And they came back to his office and they said, hey, if Richard ever comes back for anything, like just try to work with him. Like we love his work. I had no idea that was a thing until a few years later. And um, so I went to Paul not knowing this. I just went because I was like, hey, here's my vision. I want veterans from anywhere in the country or people who just got in the military. I want them to have access to your school like I did, but with no art background at all. I want to enroll them here. I want to use your teachers to teach them how to use art. I would love to just be a part of it to help guide them as their battle buddy. And he's like, how about this? How about you teach the course uh, and we'll bring them here and that's fine. We'll we'll waive anything you need. And I'm just like, that was way too easy. Like that, <laughs> that shouldn't have been that easy. But that's when he ended up telling me later down the road about that conversation that he had after I did my first piece there. I just, what was the piece? Was that the one with the helmets? Yeah. Was, the... So I did, there was a teacher I had who just loved my work. She actually taught multiples. Like her class was on multiples, how to use one object multiple ways or yeah. just multiple of those same objects. And she said, hey, I usually do these little um, – uh, pieces in my office there's only really room for two pieces because it's a really small office there's these little installations so can you make a piece for my office i said okay and i was doing a lot of stuff on uh well loss of innocence of war and like just the realizing that war is still happening while we're there and that people are dying i don't i don't care if you're for against whatever your thoughts are i just want you to remember it's happening yeah so i took a list of the all the veterans that died that semester that i was there in that for for that class um and i made a helmet for each one of those and I put them in her office uh, holding up the filing cabinet. And so the piece was, whether you like it or not, the people who have fallen before you and are falling right now are the reasons that the kids who are in these filing cabinets are able to go to school. Like that was my whole thought process. Yeah. And I put it in there and the, and the helmets where you actually walk on so you could be physically supported by them too so you could step up on them and walk. And so that's when the uh, one of the vice presidents or something saw it and she was just blown away by it and she went and she even broke into the president's office like while he was in a meeting she's like you just have to meet Richard and me to see his piece and then she took me back there and that that was the piece that ended up I guess she from there went into Paul's office after I left and said Richard comes back like do something with him uh, and so that's that's how we got the, the school there in Chicago to start enrolling veterans and we've been we've had a program there every single year since this is the first year we didn't because of COVID it's yep. been shut down but we will continue to do our art programs there but it's three weeks fully accredited how we got veterans excited about it is we're flying them to Chicago in the summertime which is one of the best cities in the summertime they have beaches they have just the food the, the presence everything they're with other combat veterans who are going through the program. They're taught by a combat veteran. So everything there is lined up to be like, oh, this is going to be a success. And they think in their head, secondary, we're just doing art. We just go to class like normal students. And so we just dive in this whole warrior brain to artist brain. We make them, just like the songs, we make them talk about the things that they typically wouldn't tell civilians. And we teach them how to turn that into a piece of art that they're able to express to other people or just for themselves. Yeah. So it's been pretty powerful work. And from there we went, we did one at the University of Southern California and Virginia Commonwealth. And we just, we just keep growing those, those major programs and those major partners. Wow. So 2020 uh, has been a weird year, but you haven't slowed down. What's been going on? We haven't slowed down. We haven't slowed down. We're a big old team here, aren't we, folks? Uh, <laughs> we won't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. Uh, yeah, from get-go, we had those two major programs. So this whole process of we knew that we wanted to get into the homes of veterans because we wanted to pull them out. We had to, like, me personally had to sit on that idea. I just knew I was going to do it at one point, didn't know when. I just knew everything was going to have to be virtual for us. So we're building up all these ideas and me and Brett have talked about them for a really long time, uh, but we didn't have the capacity, we didn't have the funding, we didn't have any route to it, like any kind of like big push towards it. And then when COVID hit, we had some like programs at the Dallas Museum of Art that were going, we had some programs in Chicago that were going, we had some programs in Nashville that were going, but the world shut down. And so we had to pull money from all these programs, and that's when I looked at the team, I was like, this is the time we're going to do it. We're going to invest heavily inside of the online stuff. I was like, veterans all over the country 
are going to feel more isolated than ever. They're going to be away from people. They're going to feel detracted. They're going to probably lose money. All these things that trigger suicide or suicidal ideations. I said, so we need to instantly start just turning things around. Let's let's start buying these. I was like, let's get a MacBook here or uh, iMac here, iMac in Chicago. Let's start teaching like graphic design, arts, all online. Let's do let's do Twitch. Let's do Mixer, let's do YouTube. Let's just start shooting out a bunch of content to veterans who are suffering. We also, at the same time, we're recording our music, which we never had an outlet for, and we're too small of an organization to to like put it out on the radio or on uh, streaming services ourselves. We ended up partnering with Big Machine Records and releasing our music, and so that's a whole nother. We, we'll talk about that on another like special thing that we do, but just. That in itself is a true way to get in the homes of these veterans because now we have music that's able to capture them in their home, pull them out. And we've had multiple stories of veterans, and maybe we'll pull some on because this whole podcast will be a lot of different veterans coming on to talk about their songs, tell their stories. But a few of them, I would love to be those veterans who actually heard our music on YouTube and came to our program for the first time because we've actually seen that happen. So we know our music is important Mm -hmm. for veterans to hear and, and heal through. Um, so yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be pushing that and a bunch of other stuff. I'm trying to think if there's is there anything else in my story that I usually tell Brett because this is the first where this might be a three parter. Honestly, <laughs> um, this is my story, my origin story, getting to Creativets and what Creativets is doing. And over the time, we're gonna be talking a lot, a lot about what we're doing, what programs. So we don't have to go into those more. But is there anything that we missed? Brett knows my story better than anybody. Just thinking, is there anything super important that we should be sharing with our first-time listeners? I think we covered the main highlights. I mean, there's obviously tons of different stories we could dive yeah. into, um, but and, and our programs. Yep. Uh, the biggest thing to highlight, I think, is we base all of our programs based on your story. So mm-hmm. we say, you know, all expenses paid because when you came back from war, you didn't have money. Yeah, especially you, when I went to SESC, I went I went completely broke, so I wouldn't have been able to go to a program that was in Nashville if I had to pay anything. Yeah, if you had to fly down or drive down, yep. get a hotel, pay for your food, yep, all that. Yeah, um, so it's all important. I mean, we want and we want to know from you all too. As you start listening to our podcast, we're going to grow. We're going to adapt, just like anything else. Our main mission is to get in the homes of the veterans of the United States to, to teach them that art and music is an option. We'll be teaching some of the songwriting lessons that we've learned. We'll be bringing in artists and songwriters. We'll be bringing in veterans who've been through our program. And we'll just be having real conversations until the world understands that art and music is an option. Because well, I think a lot of people Also, if you're a civilian so. with a veteran in your life, maybe if you listen to our album, Veteran Songs you'll be able to understand them a little bit better, like maybe yeah. why they are the way they are. Almost everything we do is is helping bridge that gap between the c- civilian and military divide. So our music will 100% help the the, the civilians in, in their life, but you could also bring these songs to the veteran. To And like we had that one lady who emailed us after we had one song play on Big Name Bubba, and they, she said, I heard your song, so I played it for my husband who was suffering, and he started telling me things about war he's never talked about before and that was because he related so much with the veteran in your song so i think these songs are going to go on to heal on to help you'll be hearing them on here you'll be hearing them we have a ton released well we have 11 released right now uh when you're hearing this you actually there will be two more that are added to that because november 6th and we'll we're we're so we're going back we're actually we're, we're telling the future november 6th <laughs> or the past wait we're, yeah. we're releasing this November 6th, but the we podcast probably we're already released this on November 11th, November 10th kind of time frame. We're releasing this on Veterans Day. Happy Veterans Day, everybody. Yeah. So, yeah, let us know what you want to hear. Um, all the, the, the stories, more stories, more veteran songs, more awesome people like Brett. He could just do a whole podcast talking to you in like a soft voice, reading a book <laughs> and stuff. So just let us know. Anybody got any Sign off. So you guys want to sign off anyway? No, if you want more information, creativets.org. We'll tag it in the description. Yeah, we'll have everything. Creativets.org. Find us on all social medias. Listen to our music anywhere music is streamed. Thank you and good night. All right. What an awesome conversation. We love listening to uh, Richard's story. Uh, The way this is going to work, you know, this isn't just a podcast for the veteran space. This is a podcast for civilians as well. And um, I have the unique 
uh, opportunity to kind of be. <laughs> you the, are the civilian. I'm the civilian. <laughs> Brett's a civilian. Brett's a civilian too. <laughs> Brett's but civilian. Brett kind of has an honorary veteran-ish status because he's written with so many veterans. He's heard my story. He's been around me for so long. He he probably has a better insight to I've it. I've heard so many stories. So it's awesome having you here to be able to explain that, especially because family members too. They need to hear the stuff. They need to understand their veteran. So yeah, yeah we're absolutely. just glad to have you a part of this. Uh, so I've taken some notes um, and Give just them, just some uh, vocab that I think would be really helpful for yep. some civilians to understand. Because we just talk right through it sometimes. People yeah. are like, wait, you're speaking in English. And I'm over here like scribbling down like, what? <laughs> well, Richard was having a conversation <laughs> earlier yeah, this week with another veteran and I was like, you guys are speaking a different language right now. <laughs> yeah, like, I is. don't understand it's any a different of this. Language. All right, so let's jump into some of these. Uh, E1, I looked this up. This is the first rank, lowest rank, and according to our friend Luke Pell, the lowest paid rank in the <laughs> yeah. military. Yep. Yeah, yeah, because there's a, there's an enlisted route and an officer route. So O one officer and an E one are drastically different. But you could be enlisted for you could be the highest rank enlisted person, been in for twenty years, and some O one comes in who's first year in the military and they actually outrank you because oh, wow. they're an officer. Wow. But yeah, E one is the very lowest of the totem poles. Cool. You have some other words for them too, like boots. Yeah, right? we call them boots. Boots. Got it. Okay. Uh, SOI. I looked this up. School of Infantry. Yep. So anybody who's in the Marine Corps, especially, I mean, Army might have their own. I think they have two different boot camps to where you go to one if you are infantry. They have basic. Yeah. Well, they have like the base. Like if you if you have a uh, admin job, you actually go to a different basic than you would if you had an infantry mm. job. So they're both going through basic but in different places, uh, and I guess that determines on how hard they are. If you're in Army, you can tell me if, if I'm wrong. Uh, in the Marine Corps, you go to boot camp, but then afterwards you go to your specialty school. If you're not infantry, you go to um, is it MC, MCT, which is now another thing we have to look up because I don't even know what that is. I mean, I know what it is, but I can't remember what the acronym is. But it's any admin person. Oh, yeah, Brett, you can just look this on your phone while I talk about it. Any Anybody who's not infantry goes through it so they could – Basically, become an infantryman if they had to. If any, if ever, all hell broke loose, Marine combat training. Yeah, Marine combat training. So it's way smaller. It's uh, does it say how long it is on there? I forget. It might be. It's maybe like two, three weeks or something small. Twenty nine day course. So it's yeah, close to a month course where SOI is two months of just straight infantry training. Um, it's it's your stepping stone into your job. So you always go boot camp, then you'll go to school of infantry, then from there you'll go to your unit. Cool. Got it. Prior to September 2008, it was only 22 days. Oh, see, So if you're in now, you got an extra seven Uh days of fun. Sucks to be you. (laughs) All right. uh, 2-7, I heard you say this. Yeah. uh, Well, you can definitely explain, but I've realized that any sort of like a pair of numbers like this like like this means your battalion and like your unit is that right? Yeah, it's how it's Marine Corps specifically. Army has their okay. own. I don't even understand armies. I mean, they have just different things going on. But for Marine Corps, it's always the same. If they're like three four or two seven or one seven or one nine, it's always gonna to lead with the battalion and the regiment. So, but we we just say that's second battalion, seventh Marines. But regiment is like the biggest, and then battalion, and then uh, company, and then – so each one has kind of a, a number. If you start from the bottom, you'd say fire team has four people. But inside a fire team uh, – or inside a squad, right, squad, there's four fire teams. And then inside a platoon is four squads. Inside the uh, – yeah, the next thing, if there's four yeah. of those, and four of those all the way up to like regiment, then you have okay. these different ones. So, okay. yeah, it's kind of confusing, but typically we just grunt at each other, and they're like, oh, 2719? Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm learning. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Um, all right, EOD, Explosive Ordnance Detachment. Yeah, and Tell most people, more. yeah, most people probably just uh, if they seem like Hurt Locker or something, just people who go disarm bombs and and do all that fun stuff. So anytime we find a bomb, we need to dispose it, even if we think we could dispose it, or even if it gets blown up on us, we still have to call EOD because they have to determine what it was that hit us. Is it a group? No, I mean, it's, a, it's just like how if I'm infantry, they're EOD or okay. a corpsman who's a, a medic or something like I that. I see. Yep. yep. Got it's it. It's like a job field. Okay. A couple of these I didn't do my homework on, so help me out. Yep. Daisy chain. Yeah. Daisy chain. Uh, I mentioned this because a lot of the first time you get uh, blown up sometimes is set up to hurt hurt the rest of the people with you. So you may not have been the actual target your whole 
you know, your whole squad would be. So they would hit you with one the moment that your squad came in to kind of help you out. They'd have a daisy chain effect, which just means it's a bomb attached to another bomb attached to another bomb attached to another bomb, and they just hit you all yeah. at once with them. Okay, that makes sense. C-O-G. Yeah, that's a corporal of the guard. So they have C-O-G and S-O-G, sergeant of the guard and corporal of the guard. And it's kind of just like a management it's a management thing uh, in the hierarchy of you have E1, E2, E3, mm-hmm. E4. So Corporal's E4, Sergeant's E5. And I was COG of Camp Grizzly or Camp Bellawood. It changed while I was there. That's why I forget which one it ended on. Um, but because I was, I had to leave my infantry unit. I didn't leave leave, but they because I was unfit for duty, they put me there. I was considered COG. So I just had to make sure that the base was like that section People were filling sandbags. That it was all cleaned up. It was kind of my priority as the corporal of the guard that people answered to me. I answered to the sergeant of the guard. Okay. Um, so that's that's those things. All right. You mentioned a couple of times first toes. What's that? Yeah. So I was in first toes, which was under the first tank battalion. And so a toe is a tube-launched, optically tracked, wire-guided missile. That's oh. what it's actually an acronym, yeah, like T dot O dot W. So we say we're in tow platoon, but it's an anti tank missile. Man, this so, whole time I was thinking like big toe. Yeah, <laughs> we're the big toe. Pinky toe. <laughs> we're the big toes. Um, and so we actually, when we went to Iraq, we didn't even have toes on our, our trucks. We we're because they were kind of obsolete in this this war. Because you know, in the Gulf War, they made it made sense when there's tanks around there because. They're nasty. I mean, they when they go through a tank, they just suck all the air and life out of it, and they explode. It's just it's pretty pretty brutal what it does. But there was no tanks in this next fight, and so there was no use for them. So every Humvee that we had had uh, a different type of weapon on it. Got it. Well, that's all I had oh, actually. Well, I've learned awesome. so much today. Yeah. Well, if anybody else has any questions, they could email us at info at org, and we'll try to answer those for you because that's what this is about is not just educating uh, veterans on military and the arts and all that fun stuff um, and, and healing. And we're going to have tons of conversations with tons of awesome people, but we also want to help family members, civilians, anybody listening to this that just has an interest in it. Um, so we hope you keep with us while we're doing this podcasting, which should be for a very long time. So thank you all for listening, and I hope you listen to the next episode because it'll help us out. All right, bye.